Alright, well if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're walking through uh, the book of 1 Samuel. We are going to sometimes not skip over, but we're going to have to bypass uh, in a hurried fashion uh, some passages because this is a long book and I would like to finish it before Christmas. Yay! Um, so we're going to do that. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 begins with Hannah's song. This was uh, Samuel was this kind of this miracle child. She couldn't have a child. She goes to pray before the Lord, and she cries, and she weeps, and she's sad, and, and then um, the Lord gives her, her her child after he promises, she promises to take him and deliver him uh, to the Lord's work. So she's going to have a baby. She's going to wean the baby between three and four years old, maybe five, um, and then leave leave this little boy at... The, the, the tabernacle with a very old, fat high priest named Eli and some very, very corrupt people in the priesthood. The, uh, the nation of Israel, top to bottom, had become spiritually bankrupt. And um, the reason why Samuel is here is to show us that God is going to find and make a way when it doesn't seem like, like there's any change or any, 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 any hope. So God is literally going to bring in, and notice the analogy here, a little boy from a woman who shouldn't have been able to have a baby to restore right worship in Israel. Do you see that theme being laid down? And does it repeat itself any other time in the New Testament? You better believe it, because God himself sends a little boy to a woman who shouldn't have had a baby to restore right worship. So Samuel is going to be kind of like a, a, a down payment, if you will, on the future promise of the Messiah. So chapter 2, we're going to skip over Hannah's prayer, not in any kind of mean-spirited way. Um, but verse 11 says this, uh, Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the, to the Lord. That word Lord, L-O-R-D, is Yahweh, uh, and before the Yahweh, before Eli the priest. So Samuel, it's a little kid, I mean, he's a tyke, and the priest goes in, and it, it, it would almost be like, um, uh, to a very small extent, uh, our pastor getting up to preach, and his son at three or four standing next to him while he preached. And when he gave a baptism, there would, there would be his son standing there next to him. Uh, when he did communion, there'd be a little boy standing next to him. So everywhere that Eli went, this little kid followed him around. Uh, we'll see just how bad this could get in a minute. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord, and they did not know the custom of the priest with the people. So Eli at this point is somewhere in the neighborhood of his mid to late 80s. All right? Um, he has sons that later on in the text will be called young men. So these are perhaps in their late teens, early 20s, tops, mid-20s, okay? So Eli, big fat Eli the priest, um, though it's not stated, probably has multiple wives because what, 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 what does an 80-year-old large fat man that can appeal to a woman who can have children when she herself is 70 years different than this priest, perhaps? Um, but they have two boys, uh, or at least two boys, 
And uh, we're, we're finding out in First Samuel their name was uh, Phineas and Hophni, uh, which are, as we pointed out last week, Egyptian names. Is there a problem with that? Good Jewish boy having an Egyptian name? It could be a problem. It's a foreshadowing of things to come. But they didn't know the Lord. That's not good. If, <laughs> what good's a preacher if he doesn't know the, doesn't know the Lord? And, uh, and they also didn't know the customs of the priests. So they had the family connection, but they had none of the disciplines. They didn't go to practice uh, the sacrifices the right way. They didn't care to know what God's word said. They didn't care to study the scriptures. They didn't care to know the practices. They just wanted what they wanted. We're going to see uh, in a minute just how corrupt they are. Uh, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants, that's these two boys, their servants would come while the meat was boiling, and they would bring a three-pronged fork in his hand. Um, this is, to my knowledge, the only time a three-pronged fork is mentioned in the Old Testament, but the fact that it's there tells us that the forks and the utensils used probably in the wilderness with Moses and um, um, Aaron, his brother, the high priest, this is probably what the forks looked like. It were, there were three-pronged, kind of like if you can think of like a, like a, what we would think of like a fishing uh, spear now has kind of a three-pronged, and they would stick that, uh, supposed to, stick it into a sacrifice that is up on the altar, and they would pull it out, and what was left on the hook would be the priest's portion. Well, the benefit uh, to the priest is that if there's lots of sacrifices, guess what there's also? Lots of meat, right? Um, almost said pulled pork. It would definitely not be pulled pork. Uh, not yet. Not yet. We're not there yet. Um, but this is what they would do. They would come, and these people were not even worshiping yet. These were, this were just their normal, like, before worship tomorrow morning, we're cooking our family food, we've got a pot, uh, we're cooking, we're boiling the food. And they'd come, and they'd go, hey, I see uh, it's a nice dinner you got there for your family. Uh, the priest needs some food. And they'd pull it out, and they oh, they were just a bunch of jerks. Verse 14, they would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. Although the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh, or Shiloh, to all the Israelites who came there. All right? So it didn't matter. Uh, if you're a, a pilgrim coming in to worship at the tabernacle, which was at this time in Shiloh, they were ripping people off. It was, it was extortion. No other way to define this, but it was just flat out, just mean-spirited extortion. You know, they'd come walk around and be, you know, that's uh, a nice pot. It'd be, it'd be real bad if something were to happen to it. <laughs> right? So, you know, they had their thugs um, going around stealing people's food. Verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat. Now, this is, why would they burn the fat? Now, in our culture, like, we, we don't like a big fatty piece of meat because we've, we, we've learned to kind of carve it and cut it and we can, we can have a good butcher. Uh, but in this culture, uh, eating the fat is it's kind of a big deal. It's, it's kind of the honored guest thing to do. Um, the uh, fat would be offered to the, the chief, uh, whoever the big daddy in the room was, he got the fatty piece because uh, to have fat, to be fat, in this culture, meant what? Well, well right? Uh, I went to Uganda a number of years ago. I've been a number of times. But I'm what you call a big old boy, right? Um, so they were very enamored that, that I've got so much meat 
on certain portions of my bones. So clearly I am a man of great wealth. Some of you thin folks, uh, y'all are, sorry. Um, but it, the more weight you have, the more opulent, more wealthy you are. In the Ugandan culture, if you have a uh, big fat wife, um, people are like, whew, you are a lucky fella because you can afford to feed her. And the other cultures where they don't, you know, they have skinny wives, they're like, oh, your, your wife's thin and attractive. You know, you a big fat wife? No, she's attractive. That's what I'm talking about. And so this is kind of the culture they're living in. And so the fatty parts are the best parts. The fatty parts go to the Lord. You put them up on the altar and they cook off the fat. The fat, the best portions belong to the Lord. Right? But look what happens here in verse uh, uh, 15. Before they had burned the fat, the priest, ser- the priest servants, those thugs, would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take bold meat from you, only raw. He says, mm-mm, I, won't, I, want, I want to cook it myself. I like it on the rare side. You've got to give it to me. And if the man said to him in verse 16, they must surely burn the, uh, uh, burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then the, the priest, the thugs, would say, no, but you will take it and give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. What are they saying? I'm going to beat you up. Right? Now who's going to stop me? I'm the priest. Say something. Say something. Right? Uh, so that's kind of, uh, you, you see, this is kind of the attitude at, at the tabernacle. You have people that are supposed to be there worshiping. People that are coming to hear a word from God. Come, they're poor. Hannah came weeping, trying to have conceive this child. It, they're, they're bringing their burdens, and what are they getting? More heartache. More heartache. And, and, and so, so they're really struggling with who God is in the Israelite culture at this time. Uh, verse 17, thus the sin of the, there's that phrase, the young men, Eli's boys, was very great before Yahweh. Uh, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. That is to say, they wanted their cut before God. By the way, this was... Cain's sin. I know some of y'all probably been taught in Sunday school that Cain's sin was rejected, or offering was rejected because it was fruit and vegetables. Uh, uh, But if you read that text very closely, it clearly indicates Abel brought the first of his fruits. Cain brought what was left of his fruits. So uh, whatever you have in your hand, whether you're a farmer or you're a shepherd or whatever, whatever your first fruits, that's what God is asking from us. Um, So Anyway, that's free for your dollar. Um, but they despised the Lord. They said, we want ours first. God, you can have whatever we have left over. Verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. Where did he get the linen ephod? Where did he get the little linen garment? Anybody remember? His mother. Every year she'd bring him a new one, right? Thanks, Mom. You know, it's school clothes. Um, so every year she'd come up with her husband. And I bet you that. I bet you they made more than one trip, don't you think? <laughs> don't you think? Uh, so they dropped him off at preschool and just left him there, and they would bring him clothes. And he, she would make this uh, little linen cloak, which was the clothes of the Levitical priesthood. As we pointed out last week, Chronicles tells us that Samuel's father was a Levite. He was of a Levitical tribe, but he wasn't old enough to be a priest, but he had been dedicated to the Lord, had been dropped off, and so big old fat Eli, the high priest, was walking around, and what would you find beside him? A little kid looking just like him. If the high priest looked like this, 
That's what little Eli or a little uh, Samuel looked like. So he's just walking around, little six-year-old kid, cute as he can be, right? Now, y'all have all been to weddings, right, where y'all force small children into tuxedos, right? Oh, it's so cute. Anyway, that's what y'all do. That's what Hannah did to her child, too. It's, a, it's an eons-old problem that you ladies have. But verse 19, his mother would, would make him a little row, bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli, that's the high priest, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may, the, may Yahweh, may the Lord, give you children from the, this woman in place of the one you dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their home, and the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to how many? Three sons and two daughters. woo You know? And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. So she goes home, and year by year, she comes back and goes, you have a new brother, you have a new sister, you have a new brother. Like year after year, and he's like, Mom, are you still going to bring me clothes? Um, and she did. But verse 22, now Eli was very old. At this point, he's in his early 30s, or early, early 90s, uh, early mid-90s. And he heard all that his sons were doing to, to Israel. And look at this, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent. Some translations render the virgins. Um, it was not uncommon if you took a vow as a, as a young woman to go, before I get married, uh, I'm going to go and serve at the tabernacle. I'm going to go serve. I, I'll be a facilitator of people's worship. If they bring uh, and they need a task done, I, I'll, I'll help clean the utensils or I'll help work around the tabernacle. I'll keep things clean. And so this was a common practice uh, for young virgin girls to do this. And uh, even sometimes uh, young women that became widows very early in their life. Can y'all think of a New Testament instance where this happened? When Jesus was brought to the temple as an infant, he bumped into uh, an old man named Simeon, who, by the way, I think was the people's high priest at that time, and another woman, y'all remember her name? Anna, thank you, Annalo. Um, (laughs) And the Bible tells us that she had been widowed very early in her life, and then she spent the rest of her life at the, at the Temple Mount praying and worshiping and serving the Lord. What was she doing? She was doing some kind of task-based ministry, and I think that's what's going on here. But these women, these virgins, these young women would come to the Temple, the tabernacle, to worship and to serve. And what were the high priest's sons doing? They were deflowering all the virgins. Like, come on, man, how corrupt is this? In verse 23, so he said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all the people? So he talks to them about it. He tells them to stop, but then doesn't enforce it. He, he's got this classic dad syndrome that we're like, well, I, I told him to stop. But he wasn't, he wasn't man of God enough to actually put a stop to it. He just addressed it verbally and said, well, I talked to him. Mm-mm. This is where you start like whipping Fanny, right? You go hire some thugs of your own to just, right, to lay the wood uh, to them. Verse, uh, verse 24, he says, Know my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear from the Lord's people that they're circulating. So this is a known, known. Everybody knows this. Eli was the last to find out. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? If those of you want to cross-thread Right down the passage, Matthew 12, verse 31 and 32, Jesus actually uh, paraphrases this verse in reference to some of the temple practices and worships practices of his day 
uh, way over in the days of Jesus. Uh, but those two sons, the, the sons would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh desired to put them to death. Whew. God said, I'm done with this. Blow the whistle. Get out of the pool. You're done. Um, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with, with Yahweh and with men. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What does it sound like? Sounds like a New Testament passage that says, and the Lord and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So we see some of the New Testament language is picking up on this Old Testament theology describing Samuel, who, by the way, would be the, become the first true prophet of Israel. So what is Jesus going to become? The last great prophet, right? Samuel would anoint the first and second king. Uh, Jesus would be the king, right? Uh, Samuel was a little prophet. Jesus would be the great prophet. So there's some themes that are being laid down in 1 Samuel that Jesus will pick up on, uh, even though he may never say the name Samuel, he's constantly dropping the themes uh, all around, going, hey, listen, pay attention. Verse 27, to the man of God, uh, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Eli and the priesthood are so corrupt, God won't talk to him anymore. Yeah, their ears are stopped up. Um, so they, they can't hear it. They don't understand it. God doesn't speak through them. Can you imagine that? The priest goes in year after year to make the sacrifice before the Lord, and the Lord's like, nah. So God sends a nobody, and I air quotes, a nobody, to go speak the word of truth to the high priest. Check out what he says. Um, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, God spoke to me, and here's what he says to you. Uh, did I not intend to reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Eli is a descendant of Aaron. Eli was in the line of the priesthood from the first high priest, Aaron. He said, wasn't it my intention from, even from Egypt to show myself to the people of the world through you and your family? That was my intentions. Um, Verse 28, did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? Parents, pay attention to that. It is real hard to follow Jesus and discipline your children the Lord when they are outside of God's will. It's hard. And those of you who experienced that, or perhaps you are a living example of that, you, your parents were doing the best to keep you contained, but you just wouldn't have it. it it's important. God is, has a bigger priority on your child than, than your feelings about that. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, but... Um, why, verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choice of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh God of Israel declares, I, I, did, intend, uh, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, will be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. There will not be a person old enough to produce children that will be called by your name. I'm going to take out your family line. It's a pretty big curse, isn't it? Verse 32, you will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. It says, you, you would rather ruin my house than discipline your sons. Uh, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will, be, which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day. Both of them will die. That's a weighty Sunday school lesson, right? It's tough. But I will rise up, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Question, where's Samuel when this conversation is happening? Right here. He's with his father figure, his dad. It's not Elkna, it's Eli. Every, he heard this. I guarantee you he did. Um, by the way, that's another passage you can underline. This is like, this is like Jesus 101, right? I'll, you won't be the guy, I'll raise up my own guy. Adam, Aaron, Moses, all of them failed. Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll take over from here, guys. Thanks. Verse 36. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. This is kind of like that prodigal son story. He's like, you're going to be so far away from me, you'll come back and beg for a coin or for a, for a ham sandwich. Well, not again, sorry, turkey sandwich. Oh, wait, wait, that's a scavenger too. Dadgummit, what can they have? Roast beef on rye. Yeah, there it is. Um... <laughs> You'll come and beg me for something to eat. That's how bad off you're going to be. Verse, verse 1, chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. There he is. Right there. He's heard it all. He's seen it all. And he's growing up. And, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Or the word infrequent, some of y'all's translation may have the word rare in it. Um, uh, the, the Hebrew uh, concept is precious okay it, it is rare it, there's not a lot of frequency and when it does happen it's highly regarded but he's not speaking anymore why because eli won't listen and who's the high priest eli who's the next the next uh, rank down his two boys and they don't know the lord at all they can't hear it and, and so it's it's rare now i want to point out to this uh if you were reading the bible from genesis to revelation and you did it in a linear fashion, um, you would have picked up on a theme where the word of God is not a written word. Okay? It, it's not a spoken word. The word is an individual. Okay? Um, John would pick up on this theme and introduce it over in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God? He didn't invent that. When God came to Abraham, it says that the word of God came and stood before him. So the word is not a spoken word. It's not a written word. It's a person. Okay? 
So when we come to this verse 2, or, or verse 1, and the word from Yahweh was rare in those days, we should have expected to know that the person, the word that's been showing up to Adam and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that showed up to Moses, that showed up to all these different, literally, Jesus in the flesh stepped out of eternity into this weird point in human history and literally showed his face. And here, we're told that the word was rare. Why again? Because Eli's not listening. He doesn't recognize it. That's how corrupt it's gotten. Verse uh, 2. And it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. Why, why is that important? Okay. Okay. He's become more dependent on Samuel than maybe even a normal, you know, any kind of dynamic would just naturally facilitate. Who's got to lead him around? Samuel, right? Who's got to do the priestly duties? Samuel, right? And he is doing it as an extension of the high priest. That's an interesting relationship. The priesthood was corrupt. There is a promise that the family line of Elah is going to die, and yet what has God manufactured? Circumstances to bring a non-Eli priest into the house and create a second offshoot. You see it? A secondary offshoot that's not part of the original high priest that will be the, the go-to person. Okay? So there he is. He's old. And, uh, I mean, we, we're all aging, right? You know, last time I went to the doctor, uh, she's a short little Asian girl. She says, now the next time you come in, we're probably going to fit you for bifocals. And I said, well, I'll find me a new doctor, right? <laughs> uh, so leave me alone. Um, I'm not wearing your dumb bifocals because um, that means I'm old, and I don't want to be getting old. Uh, nevertheless, um, Eli's eyes are dimming because he's getting old. But what is, what is it a spiritual reality of? He's, he can't hear God, and he can't, he can't see God either. So it's both a physical and a spiritual reality. And he's becoming very dependent on this little boy. If only, if only God would speak to this little boy. If only. He can. He still doesn't understand him. He still doesn't understand. He doesn't know because God hadn't showed himself yet. All right, so verse 3 says this. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, I want to tell you this. The, the, the rabbinical tradition is very nervous about this particular passage, right? Because the tabernacle is shaped very much like the temple. There was an inner place where only the high priest could go once a year where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then outside that curtain was a lamp, an incense burner, and a table called the Table of Showbread. And Samuel's sleeping here. He's a little boy. He's not a, he's not a priest of the traditional fashion. Let me say this, and I want to say this with a very guarded uh, statement. God is not beyond breaking some of the technical rules to get his message through. Okay? Samuel, little boy, uh, some of the ancient historians say he's around 12. Anybody want to guess why they say he's 12 and not older? When, when did you become a man in Jewish culture? 13. 13. So... 
there, all right, he can't, he's not, he's a boy still, so he's got to be under 12. Um, that may be true, that may not be true, but we can just imagine it, right? So uh, an 8 to 12-year-old boy, he's in there, and he is waiting for uh, the last lamp to go out. It's what um, sometimes is referred as the Western light. If you're taking notes, write down that phrase, the Western light. It is the centermost um, lamp on the menorah that is inside the holy place. It's a seven-pronged uh, lamp, and they would, uh, if you can think of like those really gaudy uh, wedding candelabras from the 70s and 80s, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, some church has still got them in storage somewhere. They spray paint them white, they turn dress, doesn't help. Um, but they're like little uh, leaf or uh, flower petals that kind of hold a candle. Well, these would have been enclosed, and they would have poured the purest olive oil in there with a little wick, and then the priest, or in this case, a little boy, would stay in there and keep the wick trimmed because we got to keep this thing burning. The western light was a symbol of the presence of God. So it, all the other lamps can kind of burn down, but what can't? That middle one, right? So that's why he's there. That's why he's there. He's waiting, and he's kind of dozing off. He'd wake up, and he would trim it, fall asleep, wake up. He's probably been doing this for years. Right? This is kind of his rhythm. He knows what to expect. And so there he is in the holy place, and uh, verse 4 happens. And the Lord called Samuel and said, or I'm sorry, I, I overlooked this. Um, Verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called. But Eli said, I, I didn't call you. Go lie down. I'm an old man. <laughs> Finish out this sleep. You know, if i got to get up, I might go to the bathroom, and that's just going to ruin my whole day. Um, so go back to bed. And again, it happened in verse 6. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose, went to Eli, and said, Here I am, uh, for you called me. And Eli said, I, I did not call you, my son. Go lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the, what? Word of the Lord um, been revealed to him. I lost my place. Verse 8. So the Lord called Samuel a third time, uh, and he arose, and he went to Eli, and said, here I am, for you called me. And Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli's like, all right, either this is God, or I'm going to tell this kid something. Because he keeps waking me up. I'm tired, right? I'm the high priest. Um, and so he's like, oh, all right, all right. He's sleeping in the holy place. Someone's talking to him. You know, you know Moses used to talk about talking to the word face-to-face -face in the holy place. Um, you know, the ancient high priests have documents where God met with them in the holy place. And Eli goes, okay, Samuel, um, it's the Lord. When you hear it again, you say, speak, Yahweh speak, for your servant is here, is listening. So, verse 9, go lie down, it shall be, if he calls you, you shall say, speak, your, Yahweh, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called his other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Uh, the rabbis have a real issue with this because Eli told him, says, Yahweh, speak, for your servant is here. But he's a little boy. He goes, oh, I forgot my line. Somebody say something to me. Right? Um, so he, he kind of is startled. He doesn't know what to think. 
And look what it says here. Uh, verse 10. Y'all have your Bible? Look at it. Very interesting. And then Yahweh came and, what's your word? Stood. Stood. So, out from the curtain steps this character. He goes, hey, Samuel. He's like, oh, hey, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know anybody was in there. <laughs> so, so this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. This is the Jesus who would come be born of a virgin Mary, would live a perfect life, grow in wisdom and stature, die on a cross, be buried and be raised from the grave three days later to tell his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come back for you. Before all that happened, Jesus is the physical embodiment of God and God would frequently throughout the Old Testament step out of heaven in physical form. The only character, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's not God the Father, it's, it's, it's Jesus the Son in physical form. It's the only form of the Trinity that has a, a corporal flesh and body. And this character steps out from the presence of God, the footstool of heaven. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is called, right? And he steps out from behind the curtain. He goes, Samuel, I got a message for you. Speak, Lord, speak. Your servant's listening. Um, verse 11. Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And in that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. When has Eli been told something about his house? From that, man of God. From that nameless, nobody man of God. I was about to ask you. What? Well, I'm going to bring it up. It's weird that this man of God showed up. Mm-hmm. We don't, a lot of, uh, most of the time when that happens, it says angel of the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew language indicates this was a flesh and blood individual. It has that nuance. Here, this is, this is Jesus in the flesh. It could be this anonymous guy that shows up, but it's likely Jesus sent someone earlier. It's like, hey, you need to go tell him. He's going to be in a lot of trouble, and he still didn't listen. Um, but again, verse 13 I have told him uh, from this other man that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity, the sins which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves, uh, themselves and he didn't rebuke them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the sin of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by the sacrificing or offering forever. I'm going to tell you what, you need to reflect on that passage to get the intensity and the enormity and the depth of it. Yes. To be told by Jesus himself, I will accept no sacrifice. I will receive no gifts. Your sins are on you forever. Mm. That, that should terrify us, Right? Um, what, what does our theology teach, right? Our, there is no sin except for the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that cannot be atoned for. What did Eli do by not taking care of business? He clearly blasphemed the, the spirit of, of what God was doing in this world. Is that you've crossed the point of no return? That is terrifying truth, right? How long did God give Eli? At least nine decades, right? Mm -hmm. <coughs> he still didn't turn. So I think God was graceful 
even in that. So if you can't see, you're old, you can't hear, you got to be led around by the hand, I still gave you a chance. At least, I gave you at least two, and you wouldn't repent, and you're out. Uh, so verse 15, so Samuel lay down until morning. Um, the, 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 the language here when it says earlier that the lamp had not yet gone out, uh, that's language indicating this was probably somewhere like 5 a.m. The sun, is, it's not up yet, but it's, it's starting to kind of warm the sky up a little bit. Uh, so he laid back down. He just probably laid like this. Because uh, he don't want to, what does he got to do when he gets up? What does he know is coming? He's got, to talk, he's got to. He's got to. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts uh, about it. Now, he had a normal routine, you know, check the wicks in the lamp, get up, you know, sweep the floors, open the doors, get ready for business, right? Um, and so look what he does. So he lay down until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Remember, he had that visual. He saw Jesus, and, and it probably, I mean, that's pretty scary stuff, right? The location he was, all he knew about Yahweh and about God interacting with his people. Um, nevertheless, he, he's there, and he opens the door. He's like, oh, no problem, man. Business as usual. Nothing happened last night. Um, and he must have come up with some excuse because verse 16, Eli comes at him. Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, uh, uh, my son, he said, here I am. He said, what is the word that he spoke to you? And Samuel, maybe as a little boy, you know, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh, but Samuel, or Eli lays it on him. He says, do not hide it from me. So first he says, please, please do not hide it from me. And then he adds on, may God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that God spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. This was Samuel's first test. Eli had failed his test. Eli had not corrected his sons, had not corrected the sacrificial uh, 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 procedures. Samuel, his first test was a difficult one. He had to tell essentially his father figure, the high priest of God, in all of his priestly regalia, God says he's going to kill you and your whole family. You're fired. You're fired. Yeah. That's That's for a boy? That's, that's heavy. That's heavy. And yet, and that, that was his task. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Um, let him do what seems good to him. What does it sound like Eli has done in his old age? Yeah. He's like, all right. I think it also shows a mutual respect for Samuel. Right? God's decided to speak to him. He's like, all right. God spoke. It, I'm honest you, uh, if, if my 14-year-old son came to me and said, so God was talking to me last night, I'd be like, hold on a minute. I mean, ain't your clothes still all over the floor? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're trying to get you to wash your hair and brush your teeth. <laughs> and God's speaking to you? Okay. Eli didn't do that. E e Eli, Eli didn't do that, and I'll tell you why I think that. Samuel didn't want to hurt Eli, right? God confirmed to Samuel, Samuel what he had already told Eli. Remember that other man of God that showed up? Where's Eli? Or uh, where's Samuel, most likely? Mm -hmm. Right here. And God told Samuel directly, same thing he heard that old man. 
probably was a really scary moment for him. This guy, at this point, the prophets were crazy people, okay? They lived out in the country, you know, crazy dreads, smelled of goat, you know, and had goat's hair and ate honey and locusts and, I mean, real John the Baptist type stuff, like crazy people. And this prophet approaches this very pristine, dressed high priest, tells him, and now God himself is standing in the tabernacle telling Samuel the exact same thing. So it kind of confirmed to, to Eli that this was, this was truly God. And then verse 20, all of Israel, I'm sorry, verse 19, thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. Whose words? This is a good question. Whose words did not fail? God's words not fail. Uh, we're told in the Old Testament that a mark of a prophet is what? Anybody know? What's the mark of a prophet? What's the evidence of a true prophet? Correct. He's, he's always right. God blessed this young man as he's growing up. When, when Samuel spoke, and I bet you Samuel spoke with some reluctance, right? Whatever he said, God brought to fruition, which would probably tell us Eli is no longer tutoring this boy. Where does he sleep? Where does Samuel sleep at night? In the tabernacle. The word kept coming back to Samuel. I, I don't have 100% proof. But I bet you his tutor was Jesus himself. How does Samuel come out of such a crooked barrel going so straight? Jesus, a true high priest, bypassed the corrupt priesthood and restored righteousness to this little boy. Okay? And again, you can see the foreshadowing of Jesus coming a thousand years away. You can see it. Um, but that's what's happening here. I think Jesus is tutoring nightly this little boy going, all right, this is, this is what, and he probably opened up the scrolls of old and began to read and know what thus saith the word. And you go, okay, and this is the word. Okay, and so whenever God told Samuel to do something, he always did it. He had a little hesitation a couple times here, and then the second time we see a hesitation is when God told him to anoint David to be the replacement king. Y'all remember that? We'll get there in a couple weeks. But he's like, uh, if Saul finds out about this, he's going to kill me. And, he's, and, and Samuel has a conversation with somebody. Who's he talking to? He's on Jesus. He's like, I, I got you, bro. We'll come up with a, a ruse, a cover story. Um, and they do. Uh, but again, it says, And Israel, verse 20, From Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh. Now this term, from Dan to Beersheba, it's, it's like if we said from sea to shining sea. It's from the northernmost part to the southernmost part of the tribe. So from Dan to Beersheba, from sea to shining sea, wherever Samuel's name was spoken, he was respected, he had a, a good reputation, and they knew that if Samuel said it, it's coming true. If Samuel did it, it's going to happen. If he projected it, here it comes. So God is confirming him for his own purposes. Verse 21 and then Yahweh, what's your word? Continued to appear at Shiloh. He continued to do what? Appear. All right. That's very, again, you would have to go to the New Testament and want to misread this passage. Well, you know, God doesn't really appear. In the, mm -mm. 
Starting from Genesis moving forward, it is a clear expectation that God in the flesh will come talk to us. It's a clear expectation. And now that there is someone listening and responding and speaking, Jesus now shows up. The word starts coming back to Israel. And he becomes the last judge. There was 14 judges in total. Eli being the 13th. Samuel being the 14th. There were 14 judges in total. From Judges 1 to now. The first prophet, Samuel. And he'll extend the prophethood all the way out until the last prophet, who is we know to be Jesus later on. And he restores the priesthood. Okay, so he does all of these things. Uh, because the Lord Jesus is talking to him. So from sea to shining sea, Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. Um, we're going to take a stop there because it's 10 o'clock and y'all got to go back to big church. Big church. Um, but any questions or comments? Any thoughts?